The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Well, happy Friday. Doesn't feel like mid-April out there today as we watch pedestrians stomp through the slush past the Statehouse. Although it looks like the skies are going to be golden by the end of this three-day weekend, this Patriots Day will be yet another without the Boston Marathon, without the Battle of Lexington reenactment. Although the 19th of April will mark the big opening up of vaccine eligibility in Massachusetts, the final phase of the eligibility rollout. But while some April traditions are affected by COVID still, we are on track for a regularly scheduled April tradition in just a couple of weeks. House Budget Week, or Budget Days, depending on uh, whether the new speaker, Ron Mariano, keeps up the type of debate timeline that his predecessor had as the week of Budget Week gradually shortened over the years. Uh, The House starts its budget debate on Monday, April 26th. That is the normal timeline to start consideration of the House budget the week after the school vacation week in April. And it's Mariano's first budget cycle as Speaker. He kept on DeLeo's budget chieftain, Ways and Means Chairman Aaron Michlowitz, and they together unveiled their $47.65 billion spending proposal Wednesday morning in the State Library. So we are fortunate this Friday to be joined once again by an all-star budgetary roundtable to dissect and analyze what they make of the House proposal, including the outlook for revenues and the economy, what this bill does with education funding, and how federal aid money plays into the budget picture. Doug Howgate, Executive Vice President of the Mass Taxpayers Foundation, and Monique Ching, Policy Analyst with the Mass Budget and Policy Center, both join us for this roundtable discussion with Chris Lisinski of the Statehouse News Service. Thanks so much for joining us, folks. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for the latest edition of the State House Takeout. I'm joined here with Doug Howgate from the Mass Taxpayers Foundation and Monique Chang from the Mass Budget and Policy Center. Guys, so happy to have you here and talking everything the House Ways and Means Fiscal 22 budget proposal, which we should note, this is the first time in two years that we've got a, a, a real April budget proposal unfolding on the once traditional timeline after the FY21 cycle got upended by the COVID-19 pandemic. Obviously, that is still hanging over everything in this spending plan, but we're back to the the, the way that things used to unfold, at least in terms of timing. Um, I, I, the way I want to start, you know, this is a, a $47.65 billion proposal, which is higher than Governor Charlie Baker's spending plan, according to House Democratic leaders. This does not include any major service cuts or tax hikes on individuals. Um, we can go one at a time. We'll start with you, Monique. Were you surprised by anything in this budget proposal? Obviously, lawmakers tend to, to keep their cards close to the vest when they're crafting this. Um, as the details emerge, what do you think the, the sort of the biggest surprise in this was? So 
I have to say I wasn't surprised. Um, I think perhaps the biggest surprise is that this budget doesn't really reflect the time that we're in. It more or less feels like a status quo budget. We're obviously in a much different place than we were in January with the governor's budget and things look maybe a little less dire, which is great. And um, a lot of that is, you know, thanks to the federal government, all this relief that we're seeing. And obviously some of it we're planning to figure out what to do with later in, in June, I think was the timeline they gave. So that is a choice that we're making not to, not to give ourselves more security by raising revenues through taxes on folks who have done pretty well during the pandemic. So, and, and on the spending side, we're seeing, you know, better, better levels than the governor was able to propose, but nothing of the, the kind that, that matches the level of suffering we're seeing still amongst all of our community members. Yeah, Doug, what do you think about that? Um, uh, were you surprised by anything in this budget proposal? Do you see this as something like a status quo spending plan? Do you do you share that opinion or do you have a, a different outlook on it? I guess I would say that certainly there was nothing that really um, was super surprising about the budget. I, I, I probably have a slightly different take in that, you know, there are kind of three factors really looming quite large over the FY22 budget as it moves to the House and the Senate. One, you've got a couple uh, Biden administration policy changes that just really change a bit of the fiscal landscape related primarily to mass health, right? So we see this $1.4 billion increase in mass health spending, which is really reflective of, of the continuation of the public health emergency at the federal level, which requires the state to um, essentially maintain mass health enrollment during obviously a public health crisis, which it has a pretty significant cost uh, impact, though it's almost totally, and in fact is totally in this budget, uh, offset by revenues. Then you have the American Rescue Plan, right? Which I think an important contextual factor here as we think about the investments the House makes, what the Senate makes in a, in a few weeks, that this is not inclusive of more than $10 billion in, in temporary support, both direct and indirect to the budget that the state is receiving through the American Rescue Plan that is going to provide hundreds of millions of dollars for rental assistance, child care, transportation, low-income heating uh, assistance and energy assistance. And so I do think that as we think about some of the investments that are included in the budget, it's important not to view those totally separate and distinct from what needs to be, I think, a coordinated state approach to, to billions in, in temporary federal um, funds. And then the other element that I think is, is quite interesting this year is the state tax revenue picture has continued to exceed expectations. And so we didn't even set tax revenue benchmarks this year until January, by which time we'd already upgraded the, the conference committee revenue estimate twice. Uh, and we, in the last three months, have exceeded those benchmarks by $1.4 billion. And so what I thought would be quite interesting with the House budget is how are they going to react to those factors? Um, and we can talk a little bit about that. It, it, they, they don't spend the American Rescue Plan funds in this budget, which I think makes sense. We're still waiting for some pretty meaningful federal guidance on how we can use some of those funds. And it's also important to remember that in the case of K-12 rental assistance, previous federal bills have provided hundreds of millions of dollars that are being spent currently and are kind of in the pipeline, right? So it's not like by waiting on American Rescue Plan, nothing is happening right now. And they also made the decision not to adjust tax revenues, which I think makes sense because it's probably best to do this in a consensus way. 
And and so those their approaches on that, I think, were all pretty down in the mainstream of what they 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 were expected to do. The thing I will say that's interesting is setting aside mass health, they did spend about $400 million more than the governor in a variety of kind of targeted investments throughout the budget. And that was a, an approach we saw from the House in last year's budget, which is, uh, I think, similar this year, but indicates a, an increased level of investment compared to maybe previous years, which I think is kind of interesting. There's a lot there for us to, to dig into where I want to start uh, sort of, you know, the first point on our, our roadmap of this discussion is obviously the, the American Rescue Plan is hanging over a lot of this, Doug, you said something like $10 billion across total aid. I think the unrestricted aid straight to, to state government should be around $4.5 billion. I mean, how difficult is it to craft a spending plan for the state for the year when you know that that enormous sum is on the way, but is not yet uh, set to arrive. And, you know, as we think about this, what are the ways that the state can or should deploy that money once it uh, once it gets in? Um, uh, Doug, if you want to start, and then Monique, you can uh, jump right in after. Sure. So I think that it's a unique question, right? Even during the uh, Great Recession, uh, 10 years or so ago, all of the funds kind of automatically flowed through the budget that, that was the primary source of, of federal relief. Uh, and even the education funds, which were really helpful back then, it was a pretty cut and dried how they could be used. Whereas this one, we are waiting so, for some important federal guidance on, especially provisions related to the revenue replacement, it's called, this, uh, this idea that you can clearly use it for uh, pandemic response and economic recovery. You can use it for uh, pay for essential workers. You can use it for certain infrastructure uses. And then there's this provision that allows you to use it for government services uh, necessitated by the loss of revenue due to the pandemic. And figuring out what that means is really uh, gonna, the difference between being able to use almost all of it to support things that we do through the budget or a much more limited uh, kind of interaction between this and, and the state budget. And so getting that fiscal guidance or federal guidance is gonna be critical. Um, and in terms of how you use it, I think what we are kind of keying in on is it needs to be effective in the short term and sustainable in the long term, right? We need to use it in ways that that are helping the residents of Massachusetts to, to achieve the things we want for everyone in the near term. We want to spend it in a way that we can be confident is, is working and is getting to the people who need it. But then we also need to be mindful of the fact that it's temporary, right? And so as it's available for the next three years, what happens uh, when that uh, those funds go away? And I think that speaks to some of the investments you may want to make in terms of uh, whether it's investment in, in infrastructure or one-time uses or in pilot programs that then have kind of a view towards how they would be ramped up over time. And so trying to balance this short-term efficacy and really making sure that it's a lot of money, we don't want to squander it on things that don't work, and also being mindful of, of the Commonwealth's kind of fiscal future. And I do agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree with Doug that you don't want to count your chickens before they hatch. Um, so it, it makes sense not to make plans, very uh, detailed plans up for this four and a half billion dollars now before we get guidance from the Treasury. But I would note that that there has been an inconsistent approach towards that um, that kind of um policy from the legislature back, I think, a month ago or two months ago, they, they went ahead and made a decision around allowing businesses, profitable businesses to, separate from the budget, uh, to 
uh, double dip their tax deductions on PPP grants. And they did not wait for Treasury guidance to make that decision because they felt it was important enough to support businesses and figure out how to pay for it later. And I would note that if it's important enough to support businesses, then it also is very important for us to, to make decisions around how to support our communities and to um, meet the needs that we're seeing. Um, I should also say that even with a lot of this federal money that's in the budget, outside the budget, it's unlikely to meet a lot of the needs that we're seeing. Our early ed centers, they've lost about $750 million during the shutdowns, and they're still having to reduce class sizes. They're having to account for all of these constraints because we're still in an emergency. And even with this added federal money, it is unlikely to help support their, their full needs. And finally, I think the other concern too around not making plans right now for some of this federal money is that if we later have a second sort of budget process through supplemental budgets, and that is a lot less open and a lot, a lot less predictable than the traditional budget cycle. And it makes it a lot harder for communities and for legislators to advocate for the needs, particularly of, of the folks who are usually not at the table, folks, people of color, low-income folks who, who traditionally are not part of these conversations. You know, thinking back over the past year plus, the the outlook has been so difficult for state lawmakers to get a handle on. We think back to some of the, the hearings where both of your organizations testified before lawmakers early on about what could be a, a dire economic outlook and a major hit to state tax revenues during the pandemic. And, and that really has not materialized. They have been down somewhat. But Doug, as you noted in some of your earlier remarks, um, tax revenues are running well above what the existing consensus revenue figure is. This House budget is still built on that consensus revenue figure that could be something like $400 million shorter than the current pace. You know, what, what Democratic lawmakers have said is that they they don't want to expect those tax figures to sustain, that they think that that rosy outlook might not last. And Monique, starting with you and then to Doug, I'm curious if you if you buy that. Is that a, a rational and fair outlook, or do you think that they're being overly conservative here, given that we're nine months into the fiscal year and running well above what the expectations have been for those nine months? I think it... I agree with Doug's earlier point that it makes sense to get a more accurate idea of what we'll receive in terms of revenues. You know, our tax deadline, our tax filing deadline has been delayed, so it's a little hard to gauge where we might be yet. But I, again, will say that we can give ourselves a little more predictability by now considering tax policies that raise more revenue to plan for the long-term. We can raise revenues on wealthy folks, on profitable corporations, and, and give ourselves a little more cushion to backfill a lot of the holes that we'll see once a lot of these federal monies, federal relief goes away. We're, we're gonna need a plan. Every billion dollars we potentially spend from 
our stabilization fund is a billion dollars we may not have later on that we'll have to fill with ongoing sources. I guess I would view the the resource um, outlook for the FY22 budget a little differently, Chris, in terms of, so we've got these two issues outstanding that are probably from a fiscal standpoint, trending in a positive direction for the Commonwealth, right? We've got tax revenues that are coming in above benchmark, and we know we have significant federal assistance that whatever the timing is going to be, whatever the process is going to be, is, is kind of in, in our near-term future. And so what I think you see in the House Ways and Means budget is a bit of a placeholder approach on revenues. And what do I mean by that? So this budget uses uh, about a $1.9 billion assumed stabilization fund draw, right? And, and on the one hand, you look at that and you think, oh, gee, we're getting strong revenue collections. We've got a lot of federal revenues coming in. Why are we using more in the stabilization fund than, say, the governor proposed? And, and I, I think what the approach that I think makes sense, which I think you could see reflected in the House Ways and Means budget, is to say, listen, we need to work with the Senate administration to figure out what tax revenues look like for FY22. It's almost certainly going to mean a material upgrade, right? We also need to figure out what we can and can't do with, this federal, with these federal funds. And in the meantime, we want to put out a budget that includes about uh, pretty significant new investments in Student Opportunity Act. I mean, the House budget includes legal assistance, the court system, higher ed. You've got pretty, um, compared to the governor, pretty uh, significant increases in those areas. And so to me, the decision to rely on the stabilization fund for the House Ways and Means budget, along with a reversion assumption and some, a couple other things that I, I think are really kind of a, a bridge approach to get us into uh, a, a more consensus-driven approach on sustainable tax revenues and the federal um, funds that are going to come in. So I don't see it as kind of a, it's not, it's it's out of touch with what the trends are with revenues. I think what it is, is, listen, we know this is not a budget where we, we need to make significant cuts. We want, we need to put out a balanced budget. And it's also not appropriate right now to just, again, unilaterally adjust some of these underlying revenue assumptions. This is a way to do that. And so what I think we're going to be wonder, watching closely as we get closer to July 1st is, this is, I don't think we should be starting the year with a significant assumption of drawing down the stabilization fund in FY22, right? So as we get to that final budget, I think we it, it's important to see some of those assumptions change. I think we're still in a position to do that. And so the jury's kind of still out on some of that. But but my gut is that that you are seeing a little bit more of a kind of, again, a bridge approach there. One of the the... the biggest headlines on the spending front out of this budget is the funding it directs toward education. Obviously, the pandemic came shortly after adoption of the Student Opportunity Act, a landmark overhaul of how the state funds its K-12 public education system. Uh, in this, the House Ways and Means Committee is proposing to fund one-sixth of that act, basically uh, get up to the full funding level outlined over the next six years. In the speaker's words, this would put it back on track after a disruption but since then, the reviews have been a little bit mixed. Groups like the Mass Education Justice Alliance have been um, less than thrilled with this and don't see it in as great uh, a light as the speaker appears to. I'm curious for both of you what your take is on how this handles the Student Opportunity Act and education funding. Does this actually do enough and get us back on track with the path that lawmakers set for themselves a few years ago, or does this still fall short? So I think this fully funds the, the first year of the Student Opportunity Act and gets them back on track. I think that the challenge that, that is 
confronts lawmakers this year is this uh, really unique interaction between the pandemic and how the formula typically works, right? So in any given year, the formula is it's an enrollment-based formula and you got to use a number to figure out what the enrollment's going to be. And usually enrollment in one year is a pretty good predictor of enrollment the next year. This year, you have a, a bit of a, a monkey wrench in there because a lot of enrollment disruption is going on with students either being held back from attending school if they're in kindergarten or maybe going to a parochial school for a year or whatever the case may be. And so you have this issue that has come up about about a $30,000 a 30,000 student drop in enrollment. The approach that the House and Senate announced last week, I think makes sense, which is to not change how the formula accounts for enrollment and to instead create a um, $40 million reserve to kind of address for some mitigation efforts. Why do I think that makes sense? I think for two reasons. One, enrollment is allowing kind of a subjective approach to enrollment. So saying that districts would choose the higher of the last two years or doing things like that. I think look as a forward-looking approach to the formula creates some real challenges. There are always enrollment um, uh, blips in, in one year. And so how do you account for that uh, in future years, I think is a challenge. So for example, one of the big impacts is Boston, right? Boston loses 2,000 students uh, this year under this new enrollment account. It's worth noting the year before Boston lost 900 students, right? So this assumption that all of these students are necessarily going to come back, certainly many of them will, um, many of them may not. And so I don't think there's a perfect number. And I think if we were only looking within the four corners of the state budget, I think the enrollment challenge would be even greater. It's important to note that, that there is $2.6 billion in um, federal funding for school districts that is for things like learning loss for, stu for students who are out, out of school. Uh, for many of these exact same things, about 10% of it's been spent, about 90% of it remains. And I think that, again, looking at this bigger picture of the fiscal resources available for some of these goals, the approach of fully funding the Student Opportunity Act at a, a 1-6 level to get us back on track, setting aside some state funds for enrollment and being cognizant of the fact that there are in fact significant other resources that can be used for things like this, I think does make sense as an approach. But, but those are clearly the issues that I think a lot of people are struggling with. And you totally get the, 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 the concern you hear and more than concern you hear from, from education advocates about what clearly is a very unique uh, uh, circumstance with enrollment that, that, that the system wasn't designed for, right? So I think this is uh, one area where we at Mass Budget also are struggling with how to account for some of these disruptions. And uh, we feel that while it's great that the House Ways and Means um, is wanting to keep pace with the, the Student Opportunity Act and wants to do one-sixth of, of the implementation timeline, but it doesn't quite hit the mark for us. And, and that's largely because of this question of enrollment. Uh, we feel that it's reasonable to assume that a lot of these students, these 32,000 kids who, who got pulled out to, you know, of pre-K or whatever, or, or, or home, are being homeschooled right now or were taken into private school, a lot of those kids are going to come back. We're already seeing a lot of those kids come back. And you know, there may be a small segment of parents who are able to continue to send their kids to private schools, but it makes sense to account for that, those returns now and to hold harmless to fiscal year 2021, 
20, 21, um, whichever. Um, I, my, my years are all mixed up. But so we actually think that by accounting for those enrollment corrections, we would need another $90 million more than what the House Ways and Means proposed. And the sort of other area where the House Ways and Means proposal doesn't quite hit the mark for us is that they're putting $40 million into a reserve account that superintendents, school administrators will have to compete for later. And we know school administrators are dealing with a lot right now. They don't need more on their plates. They don't need another application process. And we don't quite know yet what the criteria will be for distributing some of this $40 million. But there's a high chance that depending on what the, the application looks like, it could be an inequitable system that would disadvantage the schools that really need it, the Brocktons and the Revere's and the Chelsea's. So if, if you took that out of the reserve and put it into the Chapter 70 formula, it gives schools a little more predictability in a time of lots of unpredictability. And one thing I would just add to that is, um, the, uh, though I don't like to admit it, I, I appear to be getting older and have worked around state government for longer and longer. There used to be, back in the day, something called the education pothole account that uh, that was intended to respond to a bunch of kind of funky things that would go on in any given year about enrollment or you know unique occurrences. And so I will say, I do think the department has a pretty solid track record of taking these things in the spirit in which they are intended and, and, and providing them to the districts. So I think they're going to look at the, the dis I don't know exactly what the application will look like, but, but in my experience, I, I believe that these funds will go to the districts that have suffered the biggest enrollment losses in a way that's relatively administratively efficient. Totally get where Monique's coming from on that. But I, but I do think there is a track record at the department level of being able to administer something like this in a way that I think gets to kind of the, 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 the nub of the issue. Monique, I'm going to direct this one to you to start, and then Doug, by all means, we'll, we'll circle over to you too. Um, I, I know you touched on this a little bit in sort of your initial takeaway remarks, but I'd like to hear you to talk a little bit more about it. What are the biggest gaps uh, as you see them that stand in this House and House Ways and Means version of the budget bill, um, other than some concerns you've raised now about the way that the education funding is carved up? Are there any other areas in which you think it really falls short and doesn't meet the moment as a, I think you've called it a status quo budget bill? Yeah, so I think one really notable area we I've already talked about early education and understandably again that is a little complicated because of the federal money that we don't quite know how much that will be yet so I'm not going to talk again about child care but um, the other area that is uh, also quite a little bit falling short is is in housing um, we do see a lot of funding going to housing the governor has the eviction diversion program. There is a lot of money, but we also see, again, profound, profound suffering and need continuing in the housing space. Um, the administration, I think just the other day, said that on average, they've seen a lot of their applications, people are four to five months behind on rent. And that's an average, meaning people are, are even further than that behind. And there, you know, folks who have been evicted 
there were surges over the summer, over the winter in evictions. And yes, the CDC has extended its, its moratorium on evictions and foreclosures, but we know that a lot of folks are still getting kicked out of houses because they don't know their rights and informally getting pushed out, not necessarily through the court system too. Those folks don't magically become housed again. And those folks are likely also struggling to meet other essential needs that they have, whether it's, you know, paying for medicine or buying groceries or, or buying books for, for their kids. So just the level of, of need is not quite being met in, in that particular area. I mean, there are others, but that's a good example. And, and so, Go ahead, Doug. Oh, I was just going to say, to me, that again is, is just a fascinating encapsulation of what makes looking at the budget these years so challenging, right? So, so the state budget for housing is typically, historically speaking, uh, appropriated funding 200 to 240 million, somewhere in that ballpark, right? In the last year, this year, it's going to be closer to 300 million, so a significant increase, but but uh, you know, still in the in the uh, you know few hundred million dollar range. Through the ARP, American Rescue Plan, in the previous bill, Massachusetts is going to receive about 800 million dollars in rental assistance funds that need to be expended over the next, I think it's 18 months or something like that in addition to, to another 200 or 300 million dollars for some mortgage assistance programs. And so the, the orders of magnitude in terms of some of that federal uh, support, which again is not included in the state budget, um, the, the program that I think many people in Massachusetts look to as kind of the, um, the primary uh, most effective way to support families in need of housing security and housing support is uh, rental assistance for families in transition, the RAFT program, right? So the RAFT program last year got more than doubled to $50 million. Again, that's less than one-tenth of what this emergency rental assistance program is going to be over the next year or so. And so it's just, it's it's always, I think, contextualizing how the state resources fit in with that federal, I think is just a challenge for all of us to think about how that works. Um, for me, in terms of uh, gaps or things like that, it really is a bit more of a wait and see. As I, as I mentioned before, I think the, the approach on the resource side related to the stabilization fund, related to some of the savings assumptions, I think it, it is absolutely an approach that can make sense given the kind of period of transition we're in. Um, but we don't want to be in a position where we're starting a year coming up with a new way to spend a lot of federal resources, as we've discussed, as we're kind of reflecting some uh, revenues, that tax revenues that weren't originally incorporated in the budget and drawing down our stabilization fund and kind of starting the year with, with a little bit of a structural deficit on the saving side. And so I think just if there's been one lesson over the last year, it's that stuff can change quickly, right? And that, that the situation we're in can look really, really grim one day and look better the next day and absolutely vice versa. And I don't think, and I think we want to make sure we don't get in to fall into the trap of thinking, thank God that's all over now. And, and now we're back to, back to normal um, because I, I don't think there's been anything in the last a uh, few years that, that would lead us to believe that. And so that's really one of the things I think we're going to continue to monitor, monitor is that as the budget gets closer to kind of the, the July 1st deadline, are we kind of uh, uh, rejiggering some of those resource assumptions in a way that's sustainable and I think makes sense? I just wanted to make one additional point on housing is I, the reason we call this a status quo budget is on housing, we already had a crisis before the pandemic hit. And the idea of going back to the way things were just 
is inadequate. And, you know, we, we just saw a, a report from City Life Vita Urbana and MIT this week, I think, that uh, an updated report showing that in Boston alone, the folks who are hardest hit by evictions are, are mostly Black and Latinx folks, folks in, in communities predominantly, people of color, low-income communities. And so I I don't think we want to go back to the way things were because they were already bad, particularly in housing. I think we're approaching the end of our time here. I'll uh, close us out with one quick and final question, 30 seconds maximum. You know, lawmakers are going to have a, a relatively quiet week next week for school vacation week. And then the House plans to dive into consideration of the budget the week of uh, April 26th. We always see hundreds of amendments. Uh, each of you, 30 seconds. Maybe thousands this amendments. year. It could be thousands. Um, what, what issue area are you watching most closely during the amendment process? I think, uh, so I will just jump in. I think there will, I, I'm calling it, I think they're going to break a record for most amendments. I think they're going to chop 1,500 amendments. So I, I'm just looking for quantity, not quality. So uh, I don't know. It, it, it's always fascinating to see. I think there's a lot, like of say people, a lot of demand, a lot of interest. And, and so I think you're going to see a lot of amendments. I think for mass budget, obviously, we're always interested in uh, amendments to do with progressive revenue. Um, you know, I'll, I'm not sure how much appetite there is for that, but we're always interested in those. For me personally, I think I am very interested in uh, what we can do for the immigrant community that I feel like immigrants without status particularly have been really left out of the budget conversation. We, as a, as a community, have outsourced a lot of support to undocumented immigrants, to mutual aid groups, to community groups, and they just haven't been included. They're, they pay taxes, but they're not eligible for, for federal assistance and for a lot of this um, other aid that we get. So I would love to see what we can do to help these folks who stock our grocery stores, who take care of our, our elders, who you know work in our doctor's offices. So I think that's something I personally will be looking for. Great. Well, thank you both so much for joining us and indulging in our very detailed discussion on the House Ways and Means Committee Fiscal Year 2022 budget. Doug Howgate from Mass Taxpayers Foundation, Monique Ching from Mass Budget and Policy Center. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.